You're about to join Jerry Parker, Moritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Mort Siebert and I, Niels Kasterblasen, where we each week take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. And for long-time listeners, our conversations are intended to keep you focused and inspired to continue your trend-following journey. And if you are new to the show, our hope is that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalogue of all the past episodes that you may have missed. Moritz, how are you doing? How are things where you are? Things are really fine. It's a relatively sunny Saturday. We've had a bit of a thunderstorm uh, passing over this morning, but it's uh, very clear now, very nice. I'm happy and doing fine, so all good. How are you? Yes, I'm doing well. I can't believe it's only like 15 hours since we did our last recording. And of course, yes. this is for this super secret project we're working on. And we have been incredibly busy this week, I have to say. Every evening we have been out speaking to some of the most interesting people I think you can find in finance at the moment. But we will come back to that shortly. Let me stay on topic. This was a bit of a risk-off week with weakness in equities, but also in energies. And this is despite kind of this continued talk about the plans authorities have to keep propping up the economy. We had a close in the S&P, by the way, below the 200-day moving average. And as we may know, or as you may know, the 50-day moving average is still below the 200-day moving average. So it never turned, so to speak. And the Dow Jones closed yesterday at the lowest level for the entire month of June. And all of this allowed the bonds to lift themselves up towards the highs since uh, early March, although not quite the same strength when we look at the German Bund. Gold also had a good week and actually made a small new high for 2020. But the other gold, you know what I mean, Bitcoin is struggling a bit to get past the 10,000 level and uh, closed the week lower. But the most sustained moves I noticed was in the grain sector where they all got sold off pretty aggressively. And some of them actually made multi-month lows. Same actually goes for Lean Hawks, which is now 33, or it's down about 33% for the year. To jump completely off topic in terms of futures, June has been a month to remember, especially if you are in high-yield bonds, as new supply came out with 50.6 billion so far, which tops the record of 46.4 billion set in September 2013, and we even have two days to spare. And year-to-day issuance now stands at 205 billion. That's up 71% from the same time last year. That's a big pile of junk, so to speak. Moritz, what's caught your eye this week? <laughs> big pile of junk. Interesting you mentioned the 200-day moving average. What are the things that you know I recommend people look out for? Because it's just one of these indicators that are, that are commonly looked at by people interested in the financial markets. And you've just mentioned uh, the indices closing at the lowest level of the month of June. So maybe the sell in May and go away is yesterday's news. And it's now sell in June to see your portfolio bloom. Who knows? Um, we'll see what comes next. When I look back uh, over the month of June, I know there's still a couple of days left for us to trade, but thus far I've had essentially all losing weeks. Every week of June was a losing week, except the last one. Finally, a little bit of relief, 1.6% up in this last week. And I had only really two or three significant 
winners contributing to the P&L of the portfolio, one being short lean hogs and another one being short bean oil, for instance. But what I've noticed is that I've had many, many small winners. So I've had almost no losing trades, like uh, across all the markets that I've done up trading, I may have had like three, four, five or so of those markets that produce a negative P&L, which is really, really a small number. Normally, there's much, much more. Um, so all the other markets were winners, and they all contributed like a little bit, small type of P&L, except for the, uh, for the short hawks and short P&L position that was a bit larger. I had one trade, uh, exited a short position in lumber for a full one hour loss. Such is life, happens all the time. Here's another trade for one full hour loss. <laughs> let's move on into the next 1,000 trades. So let's see. It's uh, interesting. Portfolio is very diversified. Still lots of positions on across the board, uh, some long, some short. So um, let's see where, where, where the deck of cards falls next. Yeah, it has been an interesting period on our side. We also had a pretty solid week this week. Probably, as you say, like the first we've had in June, but it's obviously a helpful time to uh, make a good comeback just before month end. But what is noticeable on our side is at least because we use a dynamic risk, tar- you know, not targeting because I always get into trouble, but I guess it is, it's a, di- it's a dynamic risk budget, right? It's at very, very low levels, probably some of the lowest levels I've seen. And so that kind of suggests or confirms what what you can see with the naked eye right now, and that is very few markets really are uh, in strong trends. And it's certainly also confirmed by my own trend barometer, which incidentally, someone asked me yesterday whether I had some historical data that I could share going back much further than what I normally publish on the website. So I had to go back in the archive, so to speak, and I was just interested in kind of monthly data so every month at the end of the month, I would take a sample of what's the trend barometer like and plug it in. And typically you have six, seven months a year where it's pretty low and then you have one or two months where it's pretty good. But what's interesting in doing so, I always compare it to the Top 50 index because it's the 20 largest uh, CTAs that's open to new investments, et cetera, et cetera. And I did notice one thing since the data goes back to 1990, so about 30 years, I did notice one interesting thing and that is there's been nine negative years in the beta 50 in that period. But eight of those nine negative years is since 2009. So since central banks really got involved in with all their QE and trying to control everything. And I, th- I thought that was pretty remarkable. So we'll see. I mean, obviously... You and I have been talking a lot about central banks as part of our secret project, so we'll uh, we'll come to that, I'm sure, soon. But I just think it's a really interesting period. In terms of um, performance, grains was the big winner on our side, as I mentioned earlier. Big sell-offs across the board. Energy also did well as it came off. U.S. fixed income did okay. The rest of the portfolio was pretty quiet. And of course, as I said, the risk is pretty low anyways. So... With that in mind, Moritz, you had a couple of articles that you uh, tweeted about this week, I think, that maybe deserves a bit of commentary. Yeah, good that you mentioned it. I mean, I had two things that I read this week when the sun was out and uh, I could go to the terrace, wear my sunglasses and enjoy the good weather and, uh, and have a good read. 
One of the things that I really enjoyed, and here's the hat tip to uh, trendfollowing.com, Mike Covell's website, there's a interview published with David Harding. That's a couple of years old, probably eight, nine or so years old, right? And it's about 47 or 48 pages. So it's quite a long interview, but I found it very entertaining because in it, David Harding speaks about, well, essentially his his upbringing, his education, how he got started in the industry. Like it's it's really going back to the very beginning, the time with Michael Adam and Martin Ludic, uh, the AGL time and man and the disagreements that they had, you know, I'm not sure if people uh, people know about that. Let's just call it, it's been an interesting time that the three apparently had in the words of David Harding. But the the one passage in that interview that I thought was absolutely outstanding is where he says, you know, when we started Winton in, I think, 1997, everything was run off a spreadsheet. And there were like, you know, not even a handful of guys. They didn't have the money to hire researchers or computer programmers and, you know, people, staff, all of that type of stuff. All of the things that you would be doing today if you started a CTA. So Winton was small and they were just running things off of a spreadsheet. And then I would have thought, okay, well, probably they did that for a month or two or three, right, to get started. Oh, no, 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 no. They did it for years and years and years, right? And then only when Winton became that completely institutionalized firm and they became so much bigger and, uh, you know, they started producing the vol, they went off the spreadsheet. So, I, I mean, first of all, I found it entertaining. I found it funny. But second of all, it uh, goes along the lines of what I think we have been saying on this podcast and, and Jerry has been saying that as well, is there's really no need to do the most complex things when it comes to trend following. I mean, if you want to program in Python, if you want to use a scripting language and all that type of stuff, that's fine. I mean, I'm, I'm doing the same. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you cannot code, if, you, if you're not like the Python or R or MATLAB or whatever, C++ specialist, that's not a roadblock, right? If, if you can handle Excel, then that can be good enough, as Winton shows. And I really think that's true. You know, a simple or even a little bit more of an advanced trend-following system, a complete portfolio of many different markets, that is something that Excel and today's computers can handle. So it's really up to you, the user, to make the best out of it. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I haven't read the article. I think it's fascinating. You said it's published recently, but it's the interview was a couple of years ago that it was done. Correct. How, okay, so so to give you a little bit further, kind of sort of behind the scenes, since we are in that realm of things today, some of pe- people know I was very, very fortunate that I was asked to do the interview with the... Uh, Adam Harding and Lurik for their thirtieth anniversary of founding AHL, and that—that's obviously a, it was a great uh, privilege and a big honor to do. Um, but it was fascinating. Um, it was a long conversation. People should really—I mean, if you have time, you should go back and listen to that conversation. Three episodes on the on the Top Traders Unplugged podcast. But what was interesting was that before the interview, this was done, by the way, at Abbey Road Studios in London. So really cool place to uh, to do an interview and have them all in a small room sitting together, right? And of course, they I'm sure they meet up from time to time, but this is a small studio where you have to uh, get close. And what was really interesting was that before the interview could start, they all wanted to just have a little bit of a huddle separately without anyone else. 
And I wonder whether some of the ground rules for the conversation was just going to be kind of agreed upon because maybe they don't talk that much about the past when, when they see each other. But I will say, uh, and this is my personal interpretation of it, it didn't take them long, I thought, to really get into this groove. And I think it, it is so clear when you hear that. They, I'm sure all business partners will have disagreements, right? And I don't think they try to hide that, that they didn't always see things eye to eye. But it was so fascinating to listen and watch um, and notice how respectful and how um, well they talked about each other. And I think deep, deep down, I think they actually really enjoyed having an opportunity to just talk as one rather than Harding giving an interview and Marty giving an interview or Mike, but just as one unit and actually kind of set the record straight. And I think another observation I would say, and this is something I think people who go back and listen to that conversation will also agree with, and that is because we normally hear about Aspect and Winton, and for good reason, they are exceptional firms. So we hear about Marty Luig and, and David Harding, but you should not underestimate Mike Adam. I think to a large extent, he was incredibly important in the early days of AHL. I mean, he was the programmer, essentially. And of course, his father actually played a pivotal role in how they got the firm off the ground. It's just a fascinating that's, story, and what you say just adds to that, in my opinion. That, that's right. It, it seems to be that Michael Adam, Mike Adam, and, and Marty Lewick—they were the technical programmers. David Harding was essentially, you know, in, he was in the that, chartist, actually. The chartist, and he was telling yeah. them of, of, of ideas and research, and, and giving uh, ideas of what they should be testing and programming. But David Harding was actually going out and doing presentations because he's a good presenter and doing sales and, you know, all of that. So they had these different roles, uh, the AH&L people. Then inside of MAN, things became a bit different because they were part of a larger organization uh, with, you know, uh, pros and cons. But anyway, I, I recommend people read it. It's a little bit of a longer read, but I uh, went from the first page to the last. I found it enjoyable. It's well written, so uh, it's it's a good uh, half hour read. Yeah, for a nice cup of coffee uh, in the sun, nothing wrong with that. That's pretty cool. But you had another uh, kind of legend in our industry. I think you tweeted about this week, if I'm not mistaken. Just this morning, I found a couple of quotes from Richard Dennis, and you know, I've 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 read those quotes before. They they weren't news to me. But, you know, every time I read them, it's kind of like I, I, I really like them. So I decided to tweet them. One of them goes, when you're getting beat to death, get your head out of the mixer, right? So yeah. as simple as that. So what he essentially wants to say is, and this is the second quote, you have to minimize your losses and try to preserve capital for those very few instances where you can make a lot in a very short period of time. What you cannot afford to do is throw away your capital on suboptimal trades. That's also from Richard Dennis. So essentially, it means cut your losers, let your winners run on, in the words of Richard Dennis, get your head out of the mixer if you are in trouble, which means don't worry about taking that loss. I've just spoken about the, the timber loss that I took on, in the lumber contract. Well, it's a loss. So what? We're so good at losing as trend followers because we do it all the time. It doesn't really matter. Get your head out of the, mix, out of the mixer and do the next trade. 
So I found that good. Yeah. And the other thing, yeah. the other thing I, I, I read also in The Sun is um, a nice summary of CTA quant trading related articles in the Hedge Nordic uh, Journal in the June right. 2020 issue. It's titled Systematic Strategies When Numbers Are Key. And actually, my two podcast friends, Niels and Rob, have an article in there, which I recommend people read. It's called Nine Mistakes to Avoid When Using Systematic Trading Strategies. So it talks a lot about the biases and overfitting and meddling with your system and not following your system. Simple rules, easy to understand. And there's a couple of articles in there from one's from Quantica. There's one from uh, Systematica, uh, Leda Braga, talking about alternative markets. There's, I think, more and more a movement towards trading and alternative i'm not sure why they call them alternative markets i guess this is you know they, they just got dubbed alternative markets they're, they're markets like any other market as well it's just not that they are the usual cta type of trend following markets that everybody is looking at right it's more like otc markets energy contracts uh, chinese commodities you name it right it's still a market but um, the benefits of including these let's call them non-standard markets in a portfolio of trend-following markets or strategies is beneficial. This is also my observation. It's uh, incredibly diversifying and therefore a good reason to include them. Yeah, no, and thanks for that, plug. I actually didn't know that they were going to bring the article. as an article that Rob and I wrote, probably mostly Rob, I would imagine. But anyways, I can't remember. It's like four or five years ago when Rob was on the podcast for the first time. Uh, we did a couple of ebooks uh, together. So it comes from that. Um, but it's, you know, as you say, it's kind of timeless because these things don't change. And it's interesting. You and I, of course, did an interview with one firm, Florin Court, that does use alternative markets. And actually, I saw they, or, or someone told me, maybe it was you or Rob, yesterday told me they won one of the awards. But of course, uh, another thing That's I right. just wanted to mention is that Actually, one of the people that's that that were there at the beginning at Winton, Martin Hunt, actually also got some kind of uh, recognition, I think, uh, this week. And so it's nice to see some of these people that uh, at least I've known for a very long time being recognized even now when they've retired. And so, yeah, that's uh, super cool. a couple of questions here's a question from our friend brian who uh, actually got two questions from two brians today but they're not the same brian just so you know so the first brian do ctas ever worry that the growth of volatility trading will distort the ability to trade trends perhaps for now this is mostly confined to equity markets and then he goes on and this is relevant for you Moritz, it would be interesting to talk to Bill Dreiss. His fractal model has probably picked up on this effect in the past six trade years, but you happen to know Bill pretty well, so uh, maybe maybe that's something you can um, relate to. But um, anyways, question number one, volatility trading, does that distort trend following? Thank you for the question, Brian. This, this is a very interesting question. I'm struggling a bit with the answer when you say and I'm, I'm, i may be guessing here right so volatility trading with volatility trading i think uh, you will probably refer to things such as people trading in vix futures trading in vix or volatility related etps exchange traded products or options trading right 
and whether, say, options on equity indices, right? And whether that trading may have a negative effect on the development of trends. I assume this is the question, right? I'm not sure. I think this is very difficult to answer. You've probably heard, if you're into volatility trading, you've probably heard about, um, you know, De La Gamma and, uh, you know, those type of positions. So, for instance, if Niels were to buy an option, right, or sell an option, it is not necessarily likely that there is going to be another person on the other side of that trade that wants to have the exact opposite position, right? It is more likely that the position gets delivered, but it's taken by a bank, right? So Niels buys an option, uh, say he buys a call option on the S&P 500, a dealer bank is selling that option to him. The bank has no interest in being short that option. They will hedge it, therefore, right? So they will hedge away the primary Greeks and whatnot. So the Delta, Gamma, Vega, Theta, Rho, and maybe more complex derivatives as well if it is an exotic option. Now they're hedging because they're now short gamma. They've sold Niels that option. May have an influence, if it's in large enough size, on the underlying asset, uh, depending on when they do their gamma and then their delta hedging. We have seen that a lot of that delta hedging happens toward the close, right? So in the last, say, 30 minutes of the trading day, that's when those dealer-related gamma flows are coming into the market. And um, they may very well um, work against an established trend of the underlying market. But um, I don't want to suggest that there is a like one-to-one relationship there. It depends on what direction is the market trading itself, right? And how strong are the forces? How large is the option notional and the gamma and and, and the delta that needs to be traded by dealing banks? To what extent are people long or short? All of that plays a role. So it's very difficult to give a clear-cut answer. And therefore, unfortunately, I must say, I don't know. I don't know if I can really give you a good answer to that question, but I, I like the question. Yeah, no, it is a great question. Um, so so let me come with a little bit of a comeback to you, Moritz, since you were kindly uh, involving me in, in an options trade. You know, had it been the opposite side of your short call Tesla trade, I might have taken that. You know, I might have been wanting to be on the opposite. Fantastic. At least now. I'm not so sure. Well, we don't I'm know. sure you were long a lot of puts on Wirecard. <laughs> You're smiling. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, that's... Uh, it's funny that since we you brought it up, I think, uh, last week or whenever it was, and since then it's... Uh, it's turned out to be a bit of a headline, even though I know the story is old and it's been I mean, for this, Anyways. Uh, this company, I mean, if there's a, maybe our good friend Jerry with his uh, single stock uh, trend following positions, if he had Wirecard included in the portfolio yeah. and he had it on the short side, I mean, this is, uh, you know, uh, Christmas, Easter, everything all together in one day. I mean, what a disaster. Absolutely. Now, let me see, though, if I can use your question, Brian, to get... Um, more it's up in the um, kind of the red area of, of the barometer. And that is by dealing with your question in a different way. Because volatility trading per se, if you take it out as an isolated strategy, sure, you can argue that maybe it does have an effect. There might be people who have, you know, strategically more of an interest in low vol and therefore, because we know short volatility trades is, is a big thing and that can impact trends, even though it's strictly, I think, mostly in inequities. But but here's the thing that, that I think of with volatility, and that is 
Volatility used to be something we used as a measure. We looked at volatility two decades ago or one decade ago as just to say, oh yeah, this is our standard deviation, this is the volatility of the product or whatever. And so it was a measure. But in the last, let's call it two decades, it has gone from being a measure to be an integral part of all of our models, not all of them, but to some extent, because now we size all our positions initially based on volatility. We may, to some extent also, some of us, may even adjust our positions on going based on volatility and other measures, right? And I think that changes things because it's a different role it plays. And I can't maybe articulate exactly what I think it changes does it heighten the risk because we're all to some extent relying on a volatility measure? Other ways where we can mitigate the risk of being wrong, at least for a short period of time, because volatility is one of those things that can really explode. How do you think about that, Moritz? Hmm. It's uh, thanks for putting that out. It is it is an interesting area. I'm just I was thinking about how to summarize it maybe best. There are products out there, and I will come to your question uh, specifically, Niels, such as, for instance, leveraged exchange-traded notes or leveraged ETFs. Some of them, by the way, there's just, I think, this week or last week, it has been announced that uh, Velocity Shares uh, through Credit Suisse is terminating one of their leveraged uh, products again. There's been a lot of criticism for those products because retail investors, some of them at least, may have difficulty understanding what it is that they do if they buy a 2x product they think they get you know 2x for the lifetime of whatever it is that they're holding the trade but no 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 they get 2x each day and there is a compounding effect that is very detrimental that compounding effect produces a negative gamma right on the rebalancing of those products so this is one part then we also know that systematic volatility selling or systematic selling of options has been a trade and probably still is a trade that is put on substantial size across the globe, either outright by people selling options, right? Say they're selling out of the money puts because they see it as a yield replacement. There's no longer any income uh, or hardly any income from bonds, right? But if you're yield hungry, you may think about, okay, I'm going to sell a, whatever, 10% out of the money, three-month expiry put option on the S&P 500. And if the S&P 500 doesn't go down 10%, if it only goes down 9.99%, then you can keep the full option premium that you get paid up front, right? And you don't make a loss. So this translates into a very nice yield, maybe 4, 5, 6%, whatever the volatility is at that point in time. There's also structured products which embed in themselves mostly short volatility structures with very large downsides and barrier options and all of that. Cutting a long story short, those products tend to be short volatility, short gamma. And like I've said before, the natural counterparty is not another person that wants to have the opposite position of exactly that trade. There are some, but the default is that when a structured product is designed by a bank, there's nobody, you know, they manufacture it in order to sell it and then they will hedge it, right? If somebody sells an option, they have a systematic short selling uh, program, 
they may occasionally find someone such as the tail uh, hedge fund to take the other side of that trade and buy that option, in which case it nets out, right? But most of the time they do not. And that position ends up on the balance sheet in the trading book of the dealer. The same is true for the authorized participants in these leveraged ETFs, right? They have a short gamma exposure through the daily deleveraging. Nobody is taking that off of their shoulders. They will do that at the end of the trading day in order to hedge their exposure to the ETF. So all of that stuff creates a short gamma uh, exposure that hangs over the markets essentially at all times, which is hedged by dealers. And that has a dampening effect on trends toward the close of the market. Because what it means is that if the market, say the S&P 500, has risen throughout the day, they will sell toward the end of the day and kind of like keep that market down, prevent it from rising more. And on the other hand, if the market has been falling, they will start buying into that falling market and keep it from falling more. So maybe that does have indeed a distorting effect on the establishment of trends. If people are more interested in that, this is, by the way, um, this is not, not a secret. There's a lot of research on that. And probably uh, if, if people want to just Google it, right, dealer gamma, dealer flows, whatever the case may be, Google will spit something out and probably something good. And, you know, there, there, there's going to be material that will be probably better, explain, better at explaining the situation than I can on, on that podcast. So, so if you're interested, uh, go and have a good read of that. And then, oh, by the way, we have risk parity and volatility control mechanisms, which have, well, they may have similar effects. It's not a guarantee. Well, my question to you... it depends on the position that you have on. But, but my question to you is, though, yeah, that's all well and fine as long as they can kind of get away with, you know, controlling things. But doesn't it also mean on the flip side it, it, that if things go out of hand, so to speak, if they if they fail to keep things calm, that then, then the explosion of volatility actually kind of increases? Correct. Yeah. There is this tipping point, right? Yeah. For instance, when a certain barrier of an option is broken and the Vega profile completely changes in like in, in one sweep go, or when certain products become closer to the money, right, and the Vega becomes much, much larger than it was previously. So then it becomes, it, it may completely turn around, right, and, and, and take Create bigger trends, essentially. Exactly. I mean, yeah. So th this is why I think, you know, we're struggling with the exact answer to that. It really depends on too many things and, this is why we can't pin it down like to to one uh, to one just root cause and say this is the reason why trends are distorted and it's because of you know dealer gamma i think that would be far too simple and you know what i just wanted to say with you know fall control and risk parity and you know all these type of things um depends on the position that you have on i mean let's for instance have a um let's just have a you know, an example use crude oil I'm not vol controlling my trades, so I'm just you know thinking about what what maybe would have happened if somebody were vol controlling trades in crude oil. As a trend follower, you had a short position on at some point in crude, no matter what the contract was that you're trading, right? So you were short whatever number of lots, but now the thing gapped uh, in when was that in February or March? I don't remember, right? And we opened at 33 bucks or whatever, whatever it was at that point in time. It was this massive gap. Ever since, the market has traded down with 
more and more volatility. So you were short, but all of a sudden the volatility of the market had increased. So you're likely, if you're vol controlling, to reduce your short position, which means you're buying back contracts, which would have a dampening effect on the trend because all of a sudden you are buying against the trend that is established, right? Crude oil continues to fall, continues to fall. You know, I'm not sure. May contract goes to negative 40. If you haven't been in the May contract or the June contract, it didn't go negative, but it then turned around. I mean, oil did the V. And uh, it, well, then again, you know, it depends on the position that you have on. Are you still short? Uh, maybe some of the shortage from traders have changed too long. Just so you know, I have not. <laughs> For me, energies are still a short position, right? So if I were vol controlling, now the volatility is a little bit less than it was, say, six weeks ago. So what are you doing? You still have a short position on, and now you're increasing your short position in a market that's rising. So again, I mean, this is not what I like to see to my P&L, but I guess this is not what we're talking about. We're talking about that this may have a dampening effect on the trend. And here this, I think, is true, right? Because oil is rising and CTAs, that vol control, will be selling into a rising market. You can, you can find countless examples. Risk parity kind of like works the same way, right? Vol controlling and all of that type of stuff. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely right what you're saying. It's quite interesting. And I, it, it got me thinking that if, you know, to the uninitiated, maybe it looks really weird that, as you say, you're short, you know, oil. We're still short oil. But the market has gone up 400% from its low, right? <laughs> you're thinking, okay, so how does that work? But it works and it's just the way it is. But it's, uh, yeah, the math right now with some of these markets uh, are, are certainly uh, interesting. Okay, so Brian won. That was your uh, question. Thanks for that. Make sure you don't ask us too hard questions from, you know. But anyways, Brian too has another hard question, I think. So maybe it just comes with a name. And that is... He's looking for a deeper discussion on trend strength. I know we talk about this and there are different interpretations of that. So how is trend strength calculated? Are there different ways to calculate a trend strengths? Uh, what are the strengths and drawbacks of the different ways to measure trend strength? What are the different ways of using trend strength? Position sizing, trading around position. That's a lot of times I have to say strength. For a Dane, that's not easy, Brian, so just be aware of that. Anyways, <laughs> let's see how the Germans do on this one. So I'll start not, with you. Not better. <laughs> so how do we calculate it? Strength of yeah, trend. <laughs> the strength of trend. There, there are many different ways to do it. Personally, I must say, I, I don't actually do it in my day-to-day -day type of thing. I don't have a strength barometer. I know, Niels, you have a barometer, which probably is something like measuring the strength of the trend across different markets, right? But so the, the way one could do it is, for instance, to look at different time frames of breakout models, right? And if the market makes a 50-day high, if it then makes, you know, a 100-day high, 150-day high, 200-day high, you name it, right? You, you, you go along the list, right? The more highs that market makes, you could arguably say the stronger and more established the trend is to the upside, in, in my example here, right? It's a stronger trend compared to if you say, You've just made a 50-day high, but your 100, 150, and so on, windows are still short. So that will be one way of looking at it. Uh, you could look at um, the slope of a moving average. You know, the steeper it is, the stronger the trend could be one argument. You could look at the slope of a regression line that you put over the price of the market. The higher the slope, the stronger the trend. Things like that 
could give you a feeling and an indication for, I'll say it, trend strength. You said it pretty well, actually. I'm envious. Now, I mean, I agree with you. And actually, I think that there is something we need to maybe distinguish here. Because to me, and this is something I haven't actually sort of thought through, so just bear with me here. Maybe we should rename it a bit and say, okay, there's a difference between confidence and strength. And to me, for example, as you said initially, if there are, if you use multiple look-back periods, just to keep it super simple, let's say the only variable is the look-back period. And we, let's just say we use price. It's easier also than volatility and other measures, right? So as the market moves through the 50-day high, 60-day high, 70-day high, and you get all of these confirmations that you should be long, in this case, if it's to the upside, maybe you could argue that that gives you more confidence in the trend. But as you also talk about, and I like that, and that is what about the actual slope itself? What if we see momentum moving and getting stronger and stronger? Because that doesn't have to be exactly the same as 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 these price levels just being hit from time to time, because that could happen over a year for that matter. But if the slope really gets steep, say to the upside, maybe that's more of an indication that the trend is strong. I don't know. I'm I'm you know, bear with me and 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 I'm I'm really interested in hearing what you what you think about this. I don't know whether it matters, whether you label them differently. But certainly what uh, what you could do is you could trade them a little bit differently. I mean, you could certainly have price-driven uh, levels like breakouts. But you could also think about, well, if the slope, the steepness changes, so it's kind of the signal based on the signal. If that changes, maybe the trend strength changes. I don't know. It's a theory. <laughs> I do agree with you. There is a million ways to cut it. Um, and what you've just said is, yeah, makes sense. If people want to backtest that and research that, I don't think that would be too problematic to do and you know, see if you like it, if maybe this is your system that you enjoy following and that you can stick to. And, and then that's all fine. Like, like I say, I think that makes sense and it works. I'm generally staying away, I'd like to say, from the moving averages, not because I you know, think they're or I don't like them. It's just, you know, it is a derivative of price, right? Because it is the average of, you know, whatever number of observations you put into it. So it is a derivative that is kind of like uh, washed down a little. I'm not saying it's ineffective, mm -hmm. right? But what I found is that I could actually do away with that derivative and just look at the price, the breakout, for instance, right? Which isn't, uh, which isn't washed washed clean, uh, it's just the, the purest form of the information. And I can kind of like get to the same goal of building a trend following system. So Occam's razor, you know, keep it as simple as possible. Uh, and that's, that's what I'm doing. Yeah, and I think it, that makes a lot of sense. And I think this is really important, again, just not to, even though we answer all these questions, we, we, we may not want to give the idea that there is, you know, a thousand ways you should do this. There are thousands ways you may do it. But I think at the end of the day, as Moritz says, you need to try and distill it down to something that's uh, relatively simple, but that you feel comfortable with. There is a bit of a follow-up in that question from, from Brian too. And that is, you know, does it, affect position sizing, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and again, I would say, 
yes, and if you use it actively, Brian, of course you can you can adjust your positions according with the confidence or according with the strength that you're getting as an you know as an output from your calculations. In Moritz's case, he it wouldn't change anything because positions stay where they are in terms of size once they're initiated. So again, there is no wrong or right. It's uh, it's it's personal preference, really. But but it is true. So it's a good question and um, probably something that I actually think, generally speaking, there is more research to be done on this. And the reason I say that is not so much about trend strength that and I the way you calculate that, whether it's you know from slopes or whether it's from you know a number of uh, breakouts and all of that stuff. No, but I think things like position sizing, I think other things could be quite interesting to to look at more, and that's to do with correlations and how these things affect uh, your portfolio and your overall risk level. So so again, there are other ways you other things you have to take into account. We appreciate both of your questions. Thanks for that. And by the way, if you come up with some interesting research, any of you out there, because we know a lot of you do some great things, we're, of course, always interested to uh, to hear about it. And if you have questions, by the way, for Moritz, me, or Rob, or, or Jerry, then info at toptradersunplugged.com is the right place to uh, to send them. I think we're going to um, start wrapping up, Moritz, uh, not because we're lazy today. Be- you know, we have had a busy week. We've done a lot of recording. Uh, again, hint, hint, secret project, but okay. But also because we don't want to keep you longer than necessary. And frankly, we didn't find any more topics that uh, we uh, wanted to bring to you. Let me quickly give you an indication of performance this week. Some of the indices, or at least one, is coming back in the black now for the month of June, which is the B-Top 50, still down two and a quarter percent for the year. SockGen CT index down 88 bips for the month, uh, down 2.14 for the uh, year. SockGen trend down about 1%, pretty much flat for the year. And the uh, short-term traders index down 62 bips for the month of June. Still up 3% for the year. Bridge Alternatives down 1.64 for the month, down one and a quarter for the year. MSCI World up 43 basis points, down eight and a half for the year. And that is, by the way, all of these numbers are as of Thursday. Uh, Yesterday, of course, was an interesting day, at least for equities, to the downside. So we'll see. Any final thoughts, Moritz? No, I enjoyed it. Good conversation. And uh, I wish everybody a good week. Absolutely. It was fun, and uh, we appreciate your time and sending in the questions. So from Morris and me, thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, stay safe. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.